I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 14 this morning. Genesis chapter 14. If you're visiting today, we are doing a series looking at the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And the theme for this series is up here on the banners, the just will live by faith. And what we see is that God calls all of us to live and walk by faith just like he did Abraham. We aren't perfect, but hopefully we are progressing in our relationship with God. Uh, We don't start out, you know, as men and women of great faith. We are growing in faith as we see God at work in our life. And that was true of Abraham as well. And so I'd ask you to uh, keep your text open to Genesis 14. We're going to refer to it as we go through the message. And I'd like to begin with prayer as we start. Father, as we come before you today, thank you again for your word. You have given your truth, your holy word, to teach us about yourself, to show us the way of salvation, to understand who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us and how he's at work in our life today. And I pray that we would be a people who would hunger for your word and delight in it and that we would study it, put it into practice because it is truth. Your word is truth. And it is by that truth that you sanctify us and make us holy. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, The Quest for Character, Chuck Swindoll writes this. He said, God is forever on a quest. His quest is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2.10, we are called his workmanship. In Philippians 1.6, we are told that he who began a good work in us will continue to perfect it until our Lord returns. He hammers, files, chisels, and shapes us, all the while striving to produce in us qualities like diligence and faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and Christian love. In a word, he is building our character. Now, when you look at that quote from Chuck Swindoll, you know, one of the things that stands out to me there is his phrase about how the Lord hammers and files and chisels us. Uh, We may not like those words. Uh, Those words hurt when you think about it. We'd probably rather have him say that he massages us or he tweaks us or makes these kind of minor adjustments, but it's not like that. In our life, he is at work to remove the sin, the dross, the things in us that are fallen and part of this world, and instead he replaces them with this new nature that we have when we come to know Christ. And we are to grow in Christ's likeness each and every day. Today we're going to look at the life of Abraham. And his life models many of those qualities that God wants to build into our own. And when we look at this text, we can ask, well, how did God develop those qualities in Abraham's life? Well, he used the circumstances of his life to mold him and shape him just like he does with us. He uses the circumstances of our life to teach us. And as we're looking at Abraham's life this morning, I really ask you to think about, you know, where do you see God at work in your life today? And what is it that he is trying to teach you? I would think that if we had the time to go around the room here, in a sense, and ask that question, that many of us immediately could answer that. And we think about what God's doing in our life right now, and maybe he's teaching us patience, Maybe he's teaching us to trust him, faith. Maybe he's working on a particular area of our life where we need to say no to it and give it up because of something better that he wants to do in our life. 
It could be any number of things, but God is at work in your life and mine because he loves us, he cares about us, and he wants us to become more and more like his son in our attitude and our actions. And so today I want to focus on three qualities that I see in Abraham's life that God wants to build into us as well. Number one is the quality of loyalty. And we see that in Genesis 14, verses 1 to 14. Let me read the text for us. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterlomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemaber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All of these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, the Salt Sea, and for twelve years they had been subject to Keterlomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterlomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites and Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzites and Ham, the Emites and Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran, near the desert. And then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. And then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against Ketalomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. And they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. And one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol, and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And we'll stop there. The setting here in this passage is a battle that took place between four kings representing these kind of city-states that were located along the Euphrates River to the east and to the north. And they joined forces against five kings that were in the southern uh, part of the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. And this is the first recorded war in history. It's not saying that there may not have been other battles or wars that took place, but this is the first recorded war that we have in history. Ketalomer, the king of Elam, was from the nation of what would be modern Iran. Elam would be modern Iran. And Shinar was from Babylon. That would be like modern Iraq. The other two kings represented the Hittites and Hurrians, and they were from what would be modern Turkey. So here was a war that was international in scope, and it affects the nations that are still in the news today when we think about what's going on in Iran and Iraq, and we think about you know, the Middle East and Israel and how everybody's attention is there on what's going on. And so it was happening again back in history. 
And for 12 years, this southern confederation of city-states had been paying tribute to the northern and eastern kings. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Ketalomer, who seems to be the chief of these four city-states, came against the southern federation. And the battle was furious. Nelson Gluck, who is a leading Palestinian archaeologist, he investigated this area and he looked at the time frame and the areas that they went through and here's what he said. He said, I found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins. The countryside laid waste. And for hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery with all its monuments shattered and strewn in pieces on the ground. They came through and they destroyed everything in sight as they proceeded down that area. The southern kings were defeated, and Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, and all of his possessions were carried off. Now the mention of the king of Sodom here in verse 8 is what ties this to the previous chapter. If you were here last week, we saw in chapter 13 that Lot and Abraham parted company. They, their livestock, their possessions were all too great to be able to stay in the same area together. And so Abraham had given him this offer and said to Lot, you know, you choose where you want to go. You know, if you choose the plain, I'll live in the hill country. If you choose the hill country, I'll live in the plain. And he gave Lot that first choice, and Lot chose to build his tents and to move near Sodom. And here in this chapter, we find that he is now living in Sodom. Now the question is, when Abraham hears this news that Lot now has been captured by these northern kings, the question is, what would Abraham do? What would he do? How would he respond to this situation? Would Abraham go after Lot and try to rescue him, or would he do nothing? I mean, one of the choices he had was he could have done nothing. He could have said, after all, Lot had made his choice, and this was his problem not mine. Abram also could have thought that perhaps this was God's justice, that Lot is getting what he deserved for the choices that he made. A lot also, I mean, Abraham also could have thought, you know, if I go after him, I'm going to make myself an enemy of these kings, and they may kill me. I mean, you know, there's a risk involved here. Uh, Abraham is just a small number of people in his company, and here are these four kings that have joined together. Uh, they're certainly going to have a much larger army than what I have access to. Maybe it's better to lay low, just stay in the hill country, and stay safely out of sight. But Abraham didn't do that. Abraham acted decisively. And he called out the men in his house who were trained for battle, 318 men, and he went in an effort to rescue Lot. It is an amazing thing that he did. Abraham was not like Cain, who in the book of Genesis said, Am I my brother's keeper? Cain is the one who slew his brother Abel. Instead, in answer to that question, Am I my brother's keeper? Abraham would have said, Yes, Abraham felt a responsibility to help his brother who was in need, and he acted on his behalf. When we look at the scripture, one of the things that we see throughout the Old and New Testament 
is that God is very concerned about our response to people who are in need. God cares about the poor. God cares about the alien, the stranger, the orphan, the widow. You see that repeated over and over again in Scripture. And God is especially concerned about how we treat fellow believers. For example, in the Old Testament, in the book of Obadiah, God judged the nation of Edom, they were the descendants of Esau, because they stood by when Jerusalem was plundered. And in fact, they would join in the violence and the plunder against God's people. And because of that, Edom as a nation would be judged. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, uh, Jesus talks about this judgment that's going to come for all people and all nations and how they will be judged based upon how they treated God's people. And did they help them? Did they assist them? And Jesus goes through this list and says, you know, that when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick, you cared for me. Or when I was in prison, you came and you visited me. And they say, Lord, when did we see you in any of those situations? And he says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. He's talking about fellow believers there. Now, God wants us to show compassion upon all people. The Scripture says that we are to do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And those are sobering things to think about when we think about how God is looking at that. We need to ask ourselves, how do we respond to people in need, in particular to believers? As we see needs around us or people that we know, and especially among family or in the body of Christ, do we bury our head in the sand or do we get involved to help people in their circumstances of life? You know, I think about that for us as a church. I also think about that for me individually. It's one of the reasons why this year we've chosen to be involved with Feed My Starving Children as a way to minister to those who are hungry in other parts of the world and to care for children who are in need. This year, that's going to be the focus for the missions emphasis of our Vacation Bible School. We are meeting with other churches to invite them to join in this as an area event for us to work on. And I'm encouraged by the response, and I'd encourage you to pray for that as well, that this would be kind of a broad-based thing that we could do. But each of us need to find what is it that is our assignment. What is it that God wants us to do? Because when it comes to needs, there are many of them. And individually, we can't do it all, but we can all do something. And so sometimes people, it will be on their heart that they want to help to work uh, in the area of world hunger. And some people are involved in prison ministry. Some people are involved in helping the homeless or working in a ministry like Urban Homeworks. Some people are very concerned about the care of widows or the elderly or adoption and orphans. It may be, you know, one of those issues is what God has put on your heart and you feel that passionately. 
And that's, again, just a demonstration of how God speaks to each of us in these areas. And when we each take our assignment in the body of Christ, we can do so much as we partner together in those areas. We individually can't do it all, but we all can do something to make a difference in our world for Christ. A second quality I see in Abraham is the quality of justice. Look at verses 15 and 16. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods, and he brought back his relative lot and his possessions, together with the women and other people. Abraham made this surprising and daring raid. He caught up with these kings in the northern part of Israel near Dan, and in this sense, Abraham is really acting as a king of this land that God has assigned to him. And he is defending that and rescuing these people who are in need. Abraham is practicing this quality of justice. A just person is one who does what is right and fair. And justice, when we think about kings or we think about governments and presidents and leaders, justice is the use of power and authority to uphold what is right and just and lawful. I mean, that's what we want our courts to do. That's what we want our government to do, to uphold what is right, what is just, what is lawful. And for Abraham, this sense of justice showed itself in two areas. Number one, he had a concern for the misfortune of others, and he did not sit idly by. He acted on Lot's behalf. And this raid that took place with 318 men as he divided up his company and surprised them by night uh, brings to mind when Gideon went into battle and he had 20,000 and God wanted to pare that down and pare it down again and finally came down to 300 men. Why? So that God would get the glory and everyone would know that it had been done by his hand and not by Gideon's. It seems that that's what God was doing here too, where he took this small company of men and worked in a mighty way to bring about a great victory. Abraham trusted God in his actions. Remember the promise that had been made to Abraham that he would have an heir and he would have this great line that would come and all of these descendants. Well, here was another threat to that promise. These kings of the east and even the king of Babylon that is mentioned here came against that. And if Abraham had been killed in this battle, there would have been no heir and the promise would not have been fulfilled. Abraham trusted God, and he took a risk going into this battle. Now, for Abraham, the battle was physical. It was real. It was with swords and flesh and blood. Our battle is primarily spiritual, the book of Ephesians tells us, that we wrestle not so much against flesh and blood as we do against the spiritual realities in the heavenly realms. And so we must pray and we must put on the armor of God and we must take our stand. But our battle affects this world. And what we see is that Satan does not willingly give up ground in your life or mine. Satan does not willingly give up ground in our world. 
And so when we struggle against sin in our life, it's because Satan is at work still wanting to tempt or have that hold on your life that's just going to drag you down in your relationship with God. He wants to discourage you and defeat you. And the way that we fight that is by the weapons of faith, by the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and prayer. And we take our stand in Him. And when it comes to doing battle in the world, even addressing these great needs that are out there, we must do it with the armor of God in His might, in His power. And as we address these, what would we would call social needs, we always want to remember that we want to keep evangelism in the forefront. That we address physical needs, but if that's all we did and we never shared the gospel with people and they are well cared for it in this life and die but do not know Jesus, they have lost everything. The reason we address social needs is to open doors for the sake of the gospel that others might see the love of Christ and come to know him. Abraham also showed his sense of justice and victory and that he did not press his advantage in this situation. He was not interested in setting himself up as a new king to whom these other nations should pay tribute. In this situation, what Abraham did was he rescued Lot and his family, and he returned home. He returned home. In later eras, David and Solomon will become a king to whom others will serve and, and pay a tribute to, and there will be challenges and problems that will come with that as well. But that was not for Abraham to do at this point in time. You know, when I think about Abraham's actions here of doing the right thing at that right moment in history, I think that's something that God expects of us as a nation also. And there are times when people have been very critical of our country and we may have our doubts as well about why we are involved in certain areas of the world. And sometimes people are critical thinking that it's simply our interests in oil that drive us to be involved in the Middle East or in some of those nations. And people sometimes lose faith in our country because of that. Well, I want to bring to mind a time in our history when I believe America did the right thing. And I love this quote, this reading that actually comes from Richard Halverson when he was a Senate chaplain. United States Senate chaplain. And he said this about America. He said, At the end of World War II, Europe and Japan were ravaged. Their cities were in ruins and their factories were in rubble. Their people were exhausted. And the United States had been spared war on her soil. Her cities were thriving. Her factories were geared to maximum production. Her people were eager with morale never higher. She had the most powerful armed forces in history deployed as occupation forces throughout the world. And she alone had the atomic bomb. The United States was in a position to literally take over the world, an unprecedented imperialistic opportunity. What would the Soviet Union have done in that position? Or Germany? Or Japan? The question, of course, is hypothetical, but what the United States did is not the record stands. She retooled for peace, and she joined hands with people everywhere to rebuild the world, not parsimoniously, but magnanimously, spontaneously and humbly. She poured her industrial, agricultural, and financial might into Europe, Asia, Latin America, and Africa, 
billions and billions of dollars in aid and redevelopment. She put the world back on its feet. And today the United States has people from every country in the world living within its borders. Every nation on earth is represented among her people and millions more from these nations seek refuge in her borders. Why? Because a light has shone. A light has burned. If any nation could oppress his advantage at a moment in history, we could have done it. But we did not. Our aim was not to enlarge our borders. Our aim was to come to the aid of others, and that we did. When I think about our nation, and I think about we as individuals today, I ask the question, are we concerned about the misfortune of others? And do we hate injustice enough to fight against it? We see that in the life of Abraham. And thirdly, in Abraham's life, we also see the quality of humility. Look at verses 17 and following. After Abraham returned from defeating Ketelomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So here we see Abram again. After returning from battle in victory, he is met by two kings in the valley of Shava. One of them is the king of Sodom, and the other is the king of Salem. One comes with an offer, the other comes with a blessing. And here, for the first time in Scripture, we read about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. Now, we don't have a lot of time to talk about him today, but let me just share these kind of bullet points about him. The book of Hebrews develops this more fully. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He is also the king of Salem, which means king of peace. And he is a Canaanite priest who worships the one true God. That's the amazing thing. And we wonder, where did he hear about this? Where did he learn about this one true God? How did God make himself known to him? He is like Cornelius in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, who is a God-fearing Gentile and who wants to know the way of God more clearly. Melchizedek is also a type of Christ as a high priest. And he recognizes that it is God who gave Abraham the victory, and so he blesses Abraham, and he blesses God. And Abraham shows his humility in offering a tithe to Melchizedek, and in so doing, he offers a tithe to God. And then what we see again in verse 22 is that Abraham kind of clarifies things for Melchizedek when he said, I have raised my hand to the Lord, to Yahweh, the Lord who is the God most high. 
a name that was previously unknown to Melchizedek. And to the king of Sodom, Abraham will reply that I will take nothing from you so that you will not be able to say that you are the one who made Abraham rich. Abraham was humble, he was godly, and he pointed others to the one true God. May that be said of us too, that we would be godly and humble, and that in our life, by our words and by our actions, we would point others to the one true God. These three qualities, loyalty, justice, and humility, we see in Abraham, and God wants to develop them in us. And how does God develop those qualities in our life? Well, it is by his word and his spirit, and he uses the circumstances of our life to refine us and teach us. So what is it that God is teaching you? Where is he at work in your life today? And how will you get involved in helping others in our world? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the example of Abraham. We can learn from the things that you did in his life, but most of all, we learn about you, that you are a God who keeps his promises, a God who is continually at work in his life, a God who is faithful and just and righteous and who loves us and cares for us. And so when we think about challenges that we may be facing or areas where you are at work in us, Lord, help us to be moldable, usable in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.